All right, we are back with another edition of Are You a Robot? Today we're talking to Kelly, and I'm going to let her give a brief intro about herself before we jump into the full conversation. I'm Kelly Gautier, and I'm the managing director and founder of Gautier Search, a specialist AI and data science search firm based here in London, England. Uh, I have worked as a headhunter in the AI and data science space for over nine years, and uh, I'm super passionate about all things data science and machine learning. So if you are new to this series, what we are trying to do here is tackle some of the greatest challenges and questions that stem from AI and related technologies. And the way that we're doing that is by gathering the best and the brightest minds in their respective fields to come on here and talk to us, giving us their view, showing us what it is that they're thinking about when it comes to the challenges around AI, data governance, data science, all of that good stuff. And the conversation isn't finishing here. So if you are enjoying these conversations and you would like to talk more, please join our Slack community, which you can find down below in the description, a link to take you to the Slack community. Jump in there, introduce yourself. We'd love to have you and love to know what you're working on and how you see the current state of affairs. Last thing that I will mention is we have got an incredible sponsor for this series. If you've been with us from the beginning, then you've heard me talk about them a bunch. But just in case this is your first time, I want to mention Ethics Grade. What they are doing in the ESG ratings space is incredible. They're rating different companies on these six different pieces of research that they've gone out and they've collected data from all over the internet in the public and private domains. They're rating companies on the structure, their public policy, their technical barriers to trust, data privacy, ethical risks, and sustainability, all so that you can see it in a nice and tidy scorecard. You can go out and compare the different AI ethics of companies like Facebook, and TikTok, and Clubhouse, and Twitter. All of your favorite social media companies are on there or your not-so-favorite social media companies. You can also compare companies like Tesla versus Toyota and how they fare against one another when you look at these benchmark scorecards that they've created. Again, that's ethicsgrade.io. You can find a link to them in the description below. And that is all I've got. I will, oh, sorry. Yeah, not all I've got. I lied a little bit there. We have, we had a little bit of a technical snafu halfway into this conversation with Kelly. We were using one piece of technology and then it stopped working on us randomly and unexpectedly. And we had to change over to another piece of technology. So if you hear a little disconnect in Kelly's answers about 20 minutes into it, that is why. Don't think much of it. We got right back into the flow of things. There we go. That's all. Let's hear what Kelly has to say. And I hope you enjoy. Are you a robot? Excellent. Kelly, it is a pleasure to have you on here. I'm excited to talk to you about so many different things. And I want to start with 
a little background on yourself and how you got into the headhunting area of and how that then transitioned into really diving into data science and machine learning? Sure. Well, as with most people um, who work in the world of artificial intelligence, I started by getting my degree in drama. No, I'm just joking. Um, I, uh, I actually trained to be a teacher originally. I'm from Canada and I did my undergrad and bachelor of ed at Queen's University in Canada um, and set out to be a secondary drama teacher um, and started my career here in the UK doing that. I did that for about three years in uh, a comprehensive state school in South London, which was a really formative experience for me. But I learned after three years of teaching that um, teaching is best left to people who couldn't imagine doing anything else and are, you know, extremely passionate and kind of called to education. And that just wasn't me as much as I enjoyed it. Um, and still, you know, some of my best friends to this day are my teacher friends. Um, I, uh, moved on to work for actually an education recruitment consulting firm, um, who had helped me to find my job originally in the UK. Um, they happened to have a job on their team. And so I entered the world of recruitment, um, through my education background and quickly just learned to love recruitment. Um, but wasn't so crazy about uh, doing it in the education sector because there's sort of a naturally low ceiling for earnings because of the salary levels mm. and it's a really saturated market here in the UK. So I decided to move into um, I decided to move over to the city and join like a big kind of boiler room um, salesy recruitment consulting firm called Hydrogen Group. Um, who were uh, leaders in a lot of industries recruitment-wise when I joined them back in 2013. Um, I originally joined their finance team um, and almost quit because I hated it so much. <laughs> and um, when I was speaking <laughs> to my manager, I was, I was doing like recruitment, contract recruitment into credit risk in uh, Benelux. It was super niche and I had no idea what I was doing. And my manager, when I told her I was thinking of leaving, said, look, um, we don't want you to leave. Um, we are in the middle of putting together this new recruitment function around big data and data science. And would you be interested in moving into that space? And of course, at the time, this is early 2013, I had no idea what big data or data science was. Um, but when I started talking to some of my friends who were yeah. working in tech or working in advertising... They were like, you've got to do it 100%. Sorry, I should say the other option was to join the oil and gas recruitment team. And um, the mm. oil and gas recruiters in the company were by far the biggest billers. Um, you know, they were making so much money. And everyone in oil and gas was like, don't do tech, join oil and gas. And um, I actually went with my gut. And I read so much about big data and data science at the time. It was like right after the Harvard Business Review had published their article about data science being the sexiest job mm. of the 21st century and um, joined the team. Credit to uh, my manager, a guy named Nick Edelman, who now runs his own recruitment business, who like really won me over with the pitch and uh, joined that team and honestly never looked back. Like, it really helped me to fuse my love for recruitment with like interest in, you know, cutting edge technology and the applications of data science 
in real life were just so obvious and tangible to me. Like I just sort of couldn't get enough of it. And then combine that with a love of talking to intelligent people and understanding what they do and what makes them tick. Um, I got to do that all day long when I was talking to my data science candidates and clients. So um, yeah, I've been kind of doing it ever since um, in different formats. I worked with Hydrogen for a while and then with another company. And then I set up my own business in 2015 doing um, search and, 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 and recruitment for companies across the UK and, and beyond. It's incredible. It actually is nice to hear this story because I also started off as a teacher. Ooh. And I was teaching English in Spain. No way. And I know a little bit about this recruiting life because one of the students that I had, I would go to their office and it was a recruiting office. And so we would have class in the morning as everyone was filtering into the office back when those were popular. And we would be in there and we would be having English class and you would hear they had like a bell set up. And so every time someone closed the, uh, or placed the candidate, they would ring the bell and it was like, oh, we placed somebody, great. So I know a little bit about the recruiting space, but I'd love for you to walk me through what it is like to be a recruiter and doing search in the data science space. Well, um, it's really fun. Um, it's a super dynamic line of work. Um, so it's on a very basic level, what you'd imagine, you know, recruitment is introducing intelligent, promising, talented people to companies that would benefit from hiring them. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously so much more than that, but um, a lot of it just comes down to building relationships. Um, and, uh, I guess that's something that I have managed to, to have a knack for over the years, but in the, in the AI and data science space, it's, it's incredibly complex because of how, um, how technical the jobs are, um, that I'll be helping companies to recruit for, but also the ever evolving nature of those jobs and, the, uh, the dynamic nature of, um, job titles and, you know, trying to navigate like the requirements of a company calling their job X, but knowing that the market is actually calling those people Y and trying to mix and match, mm -hmm. you know, the needs of a company with the, uh, with the hopes and dreams of the candidate market. And, um, in the art artificial intelligence and data science space, there has always been way more of a demand for candidates than there is supply, as you know. Um, so that means that, you know, that's why I have a job because I have, you know, uh, relationships with a lot of the people that these companies want to hire. Um, but it means that, uh, you know, it's, it's hard. It's really hard to find people who are right for the job, who are actually looking for a job, um, who have the skills that they say they have on paper, you know, trying to understand that and qualify that as someone who's not technical can be quite hard. So I think probably the best way to uh, describe it is like 
recruitment writ large is like pretty process driven. If you're working for a big recruiting firm, if you're doing it on your own, the actual process of it is straightforward, right? Like it's like you go out to your market, you find your people. Actually, sorry, it starts earlier than that. Mm -hmm. It's you develop relationships with clients who then want to hire you to help them find people. And then you go out and find those people. And then you sort of facilitate them through the hiring process. um, And you go out and you keep finding new candidates. We were talking about how a data scientist role may be advertised as a data scientist role. But really, when you look at what the company is actually asking for, it might be better suited as a data analyst, or it might be better suited as a machine learning engineer, or potentially a data engineer. And so there are all these things. And we have running jokes that uh, happen in the MLOps community quite a bit, where they're saying like, yeah, data scientist is just a term for whatever you want it to be. Like data scientist, (laughs) what does that actually mean? Whatever you want it to be, just throw a bunch of necessities into the pot, mix it up, and then that's your data scientist. So I can understand when you talk about how it is moving so fast. It's not so clear what a data scientist's role is. Yeah. That is something that comes up quite a bit. And then even to the next level, like if you look for a machine learning engineer, what is that role? And also, you have to look at the maturity level of each company and know where are they when it comes to machine learning or their data science program and seeing how they're able to to react to all of this, I think is a very, very interesting piece. And then you have the fact that all of these different parts of the industry that's evolving, like the machine learning engineer or data scientist, and then they're now having to take on new new skill sets or new roles. And you see the splintering of these different roles, like in the machine learning community, we have the MLOps role that's coming up quite a bit. And then you have the, what we jokingly call like the DevOps went into DevSecOps and we're wondering when someone needs to make sure that there is model security or the MLOps environment is secure. What is that job title now? Is there going to be a ML secure ops job title. And so I can see how that can get very confusing very fast. And I imagine there's never a dull moment when you're dealing with any of this. What I would like to know though, when it comes to the, I think it's it's quite ironic that when you're going out and you're looking for for candidates, you mentioned how interesting or sorry, how important it is for you to have the relationships. And Mm. I also know that there is a lot of artificial intelligence being used right now within the recruiting field. And so maybe you could talk for a moment about those two and the juxtaposition there. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I, I'm a little dubious at this point in time, to be honest, of the effectiveness of cloud-based ATSs and AI-driven recruitment software, because I understand, like, in theory, the idea, right? Like, 
finding a great candidate for a job in a lot of ways is a, is a keyword exercise, right? Like, you know, um, a LinkedIn recruiter is the number one tool used by headhunters and recruiters, whether they're working for agencies, working for themselves or internally with companies. And, you know, that technology is incredible, but it's only as good as the person using it. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, so I don't actually know that much about technology like ZipRecruiter and those types of platforms because I've never had to use them. I'm sort of the alternative to using that. Um, but what I do know is that I have uh, explored a little bit tools that would help to automate candidate flow for me. So either outsourcing that piece to another company who can help me to find candidates and maybe I don't have time to find them. Um, or even when you use LinkedIn Recruiter, when you post a job on LinkedIn Recruiter, it automatically generates a list of candidates that they think would be great for your job. So that is like a perfect example. And the way they do that is using, you know, keyword searching, natural language processing. They're, they're mixing and matching the people they think will fit your requirements based on the language of your, of your advert. Um, and more often than not, the candidates are not right for the job, truthfully. Mm. Like in a list of 25 to 50 candidates, maybe two or three might be spot on because there's a lot of there's a lot of um, ambiguity and a lot of room for error. Like for example, um, on LinkedIn, as most people will know, you can track your career from the first job you ever had, okay? So if you worked in the mall in high school, you can put that job on your on your LinkedIn profile, which sometimes people do. Or like, the super competitive type A kind of, uh, you know, uh, top academic candidates will put their jobs every summer that they have between mm -hmm. their, their university years. And what that does is it confuses anyone who's looking for people with a certain amount of years experience. So mm -hmm. if I then go into LinkedIn or if, you know, within my job advert that LinkedIn is trying to match up to, I say, you know, you need between three and five years experience. As a data scientist, their algorithm will pick up on candidates whose criteria keyword search wise matches up, but who have three to five years experience, but they might not even be out of university yet. So like, there's always like, there's always room to maneuver. So I think that as helpful as these technologies can be, and you know, I'm sure that there are probably companies out there that you and I don't know about who have cracked it a little bit more than the ones that I do know about and are still working on it, you know, in beta or whatever. As far as the ones I've come across, you still, the recruitment process still requires that like intuitive human element that a knowledgeable recruiter can bring, as well as the relationship piece. You know, there's lots of things that I know about what makes a good data scientist or machine learning engineer, or like the kind of nuances of the technologies that people are using or the ML ops stuff. Like, 
what I'm able to do because of the relationships I have with really smart managers and people who were once, you know, junior candidates who are now directors in large organizations, they can distill their learnings to me. And I can then, you know, imbue that into my searches with people in, in, in a network. And I can, you know, have conversations that are educated with them and, you know, tease out stuff that isn't in their CV, you know, because not everything is in a person's CV or LinkedIn profile. So, mm-hmm. you know, I do think that, and I, and I would say this because it's my livelihood, but I do think that so much of recruitment still does boil down to, you know, the human connection and the ability to assess someone in more than just like a quantitative structured way but also on the qualitative and intuitive side. Does that make sense? That's a great answer. And I find it, again, very ironic because it is something that you are trying to get machine learning engineers and there is that machine learning software out there that potentially can help. But at the end of the day, the human element is so important and it cannot be overlooked. And as hard as we try to get rid of that human element. So far, it seems like what you're saying is that it's not quite possible. Maybe in five to 10 years, who knows what happens and how the whole job application process will change. But for now, it seems like it's a it's good to hear that. Like I like to hear what you're saying because it, it gives me hope that not everything can be automated. Yeah, I mean... You know, I think that gives us all hope. (laughs) You know, we all like to feel like we're adding some value as human beings. Um, And, you know, clients like to, clients like to change their minds. They like to change their requirements halfway through a process. They like to, you know, uh, things that are formulaic are great, but they don't always work. Like you need someone who can help to tailor things and tinker with them and suggest new ideas. And there needs to be like a critical thinking element um, in a recruitment process. And if you have, you know, you kind of see it when you're working with a recruiter who doesn't know what they're doing. It's kind of the same thing. Like you give them a list of requirements. You know, imagine you are this great kind of series A startup that's doing a huge recruitment drive, trying to find like a whole data science team covering the whole life cycle. Maybe there's like a data product manager in there, you know, ML ops, sure. And they hire a tech recruiter who is a generalist and all they're going on is the job description. So, you know, they'll do keyword searching and, you know, sure enough, like they won't come up with anyone they might get lucky, but they don't have the capability of like pushing back and asking questions when they don't understand or when they feel like a job description doesn't resonate with the market or like the salaries are out of whack. Like, so, you know, in the same way that a machine wouldn't be able to push back, you know, someone who doesn't really know the ins and outs of it and the subtleties of the market wouldn't be able to either. Mm. So I want to change gears real fast. And this is something that I've been pondering for quite some time now when it comes to recruiting and recruiting a diverse field and Mm -hmm. recruiting the, getting the best from everywhere, right? Not just the best from one specific profile or candidate. 
And I've talked to some people about this because it has been on the top of my mind. And I know that you have some thoughts around like gender and ethnicity equality and making sure that we're hiring fairly all around. So I bring it up to you for this reason. And it's something that when I've talked to other, like let's imagine that series A startup that you were talking about Mm -hmm. and they're based in one of these tech hub centrals. We can even say London, right? And they say, okay, we want to get the data scientists or we want to figure out our data product. And so we need to go out and hire. And I know that there is statistically a lot more males than females doing the roles, right? So Mm -hmm. automatically you're left with less of a pool to choose from when it comes to just, just on gender. And then we can talk about race and all of that more later. But then when I look at that, like the pool of someone that is uh, female compared to male or, or non-binary, whatever they choose to go by, it makes it very difficult for the Series A to, to be equal, right? And then on top of that, you have all of these other companies that are big and have a lot of money to throw around and they care a lot about the equality piece too. So if there is this smaller pool already just by definition, and then on top of that, you have these sharks in the water that are going and they're snatching up every good engineer that is uh, not a male or a white male, then it makes it even more difficult. And so I've talked to some people about this and I've heard all the different answers as far as like, yeah, but that's just a cop-out to say that it's difficult to hire uh, equally across the fields. But I don't feel like... uh, Something inside of me thinks, yeah, maybe it's a bit of a cop-out to not hire a woman because the... Or not hire... Let me see. What am I trying to say here? Maybe it is a little bit of a cop-out, but at the same time, I feel like that is a bit of a problem. And yeah. I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. Um, it is... <sighs> people pay a lot of lip service to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like, let's be honest. Um People talk about it. You have to talk about it. What are people actually doing about it? Um, Working with a recruiter is actually really handy in that respect because we're in the trenches, like, you know, using our various resources to compile projects and lists of all the people who are representing the skill sets and job titles that people are after. So I could, you know, I could tell you, like, in a more recent search that I did for data engineers. I could break down for you like the the ethnicity of the candidate pool and the gender and all of all of those types of things. The reality is, you're right. Like, you know, that talent pool is already really small, and then within that, the number of candidates who are actually interested in talking to you even smaller. The ones who are actually going to be any good at the job even smaller. So, like, the talent pool you're actually dealing with is minute. So you sort of have to take drastic action 
So there's, there's a few things like, you know, I've sort of mentioned lip service, like you can't just pay lip service to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like you have to have it as part of your company manifesto. Like it has to be something that is a priority at the board level, at the executive leadership level. And you can't just talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. You know, companies need to hire women or people from uh, BAME or, you know, any other minority ethnic backgrounds in positions of leadership who will be recruiting. Because, you know, we know through various studies that have been done and published that people cannot be what they cannot see. So candidates are only going to apply for jobs or be interested in jobs where the leaders in that business reflect who they are and the diverse talent pool. And then once you have a diverse um, company full of diverse employees, that we know also through studies that have been published that that will just perpetuate diversity in the organization. So companies that are struggling, this series A companies who are actually in a perfect position to set a bar in their company because if they're about to, you know, scale from 15 to 75 people or whatever, it's their opportunity to actually put a flag in the sand. And, you know, you talk about like the big tech companies who are eating up all the sort of um, diverse talent out there. It's like, well, you know, surely the market will have to respond to the fact that smaller companies are going to want to invest in resources that will help them to create a more diverse hiring environment. So like investing in um, diversity, equity, and inclusion education programs as a business, um, unconscious bias training, like all of these things, if you invest in those before you go through a growth phase, suddenly it's not just something that people have heard about and will like, you know, mimic back to you in a conversation, they will tell you strategically how their company is enacting those priorities. And suddenly, as a recruiter who's an extension of that company, I can then relay that to the world. And so it becomes much more compelling to candidates of a diverse sort of nature, you know? Um, It has to be something that permeates every step of the process. And then there's actually there's stuff you can actually do in recruiting that has been proven to work like blinding CVs. So, you know, I've never actually had a company ask me to do this, but I'm quite willing to do it is, you know, you submit a CV, but you take the name off or you take any other kind of um, defining characteristic, whether it's the years they went to university or the companies that names that they worked for to um, save people from their own unconscious bias at the first, uh, point of filtering. Um, But that's not enough. Like there needs to be more built in. And actually in a recent episode of my podcast, we talk about all the ways in which a company can um, make sure that their recruitment process accommodates a diverse talent pool. So now comes the sticky question. And forgive me if I sound like an asshole in this in this mock <laughs> part of and and I realizing when I say that it's like the the excuse like oh forgive me for sounding like an asshole now I'm just going to be an asshole and yeah that's okay hopefully no hopefully it doesn't it's not that because really I I care deeply about this and I yeah. understand that there are difficult questions that are going through and difficult situations that series 
a startups are going through. And first of all, I love what you're talking about, like success breeds success on this front. And this upward or this, uh, instead of it being like a vicious circle, it's like this successful circle and it spirals up and you get more diversity because it is a part of the brand. Now, where I start to wonder about this is that company that we talked about, this theoretical company that got their series A, they've got a lot of pressure on them from the investors to hire and hire quickly. And they also need to get a product out the door and find product market fit, all of that, that the CEO is trying to dodge all these bullets that are coming at them. And they also want to keep a high quality of technical recruits or just anyone that comes on to the business. They want to make sure that everyone that they hire is A, a cultural fit, but B, they're they're really, they do what they say they do, right? And they can do it well. And now the question that I have that is potentially controversial, hopefully not, but I've got to can watch my back in a way is do you take it because you cannot find someone that is diverse that is at the same level as someone that is just the typical same person that you have at the company like a white male do you take a hit on the quality Hopefully it doesn't come to this, right? Hopefully it's not that. But if you're the CEO and you're looking at two different candidates and you say, well, this one, it wasn't as strong technically, but they do do the diversity thing well. And hopefully it's not looking at it just like that. But these are things that they're factoring in, right? So is it, when you talk about the bringing that into the blood of the company, is it really leading with that and saying, we'll take a hit on someone not being as technical if they can add to our diversity? Uh, controversial question, my is friend. It, was it? Okay. <laughs> See, so that, but no, this it's is okay. It's okay. But, but, but that's equity. That's the definition. Oh. It is raising up and empowering people who are not, who do not have equal opportunity um, for success and creating a situation that will foster that. Um, so I guess my answer is yes. Like in some cases, I think you do. I, I don't think, and, and to be fair like, and, and totally honest, I'm not an expert in D, E, and I. So like, you know, I'm sure you, you you should actually have another guest on who's a real, I could recommend some actually, some people who are real specialists oh, in this. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think you do have to concede a little bit. So again, um, Greg, my collaborator and I talked about this in a recent episode that hasn't been published yet. We talked about how if you take, and, and this is fairly common knowledge now, but um, if you look at a job description, or if you have if you have a job description that you're advertising, and um, there are ten uh, requirements for that job uh, that candidates need to fulfill, women are way less likely to apply for a job if they don't tick all the boxes, or if they don't tick like eighty percent of the boxes. That's like a a known thing. I don't know what study you know have has examined that, but I know that it's like a proven thing. And men are way more likely to apply if they have got like four of the 10. 
Yeah, just um, one even and give me just one. They're like, sure, why not? So um, I think there's a couple things that need to happen. And I think that just exemplifies where, you know, you're less likely to attract diverse candidates to begin with, um, you know, just from like a passive perspective. Like if you're just advertising and waiting for people to apply, you're going to receive a less diverse applicant pool, but just by virtue of those of human nature and the differences between men and women and how they behave in a job search. Um, so there are things a company can do. They can put fewer requirements on their job descriptions. Um, they can be less prescriptive, like some, so I'm all for detailed job descriptions. I think the more detailed, the better, but requirements should be fairly loose. Like there should be room to maneuver so that you do get people applying based on their potential and not just based on their track record. And I think maybe that's the key is companies, in order to foster a more diverse talent pool and therefore a greater likelihood of employing someone who's not just like a white male, um, you know, be willing to compromise a little bit on certain aspects of your, of your requirements and, um, you know, be committed to investing in people's potential, you know, try, like it may mean that hiring people, you're, you know, you may hire people that you're not a hundred percent sure about, but they will have ticked, you know, 50, 60, 70% of your boxes. And that's enough being kind of less militant about needing everyone to tick all the boxes will just naturally allow the talent pool to broaden. Um, and I think by virtue of that, you'll end up with a more diverse talent pool. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not an easy question to answer. Mm. Like, I think a lot of companies are navigating this and the fact that talent is in such short supply to begin with is, mm -hmm. you know, a bit of a nightmare for all these companies who want to hire. But, um, you know, maybe the diversification of jobs in the ML space, you know, these jobs becoming very specialized will help to benefit that or improve that. You know, if you're not looking for someone who does everything, but someone who does like one very specific thing very well, maybe you'll end up with a more diverse talent pool because you don't need someone who ticks all the boxes. I don't know. I love what you said there about hire for potential. Yeah, man. Really, that is huge. And not looking at so, or not looking so much at what they're doing right now or what they have, what their track record is. I mean, of course, these are things that should be taken into account, but realizing that this person is really, there's a lot of room to grow. And I really resonate with that one because that's how I feel. I am. I really feel like I was, you know, maybe a year ago, year and a half ago, I knew nothing about machine learning. And then I fell into this community around MLOps and now I, I know a little bit. And it's because of that, because of the, the hunger that I had to learn. And so really trying to hire for potential is crucial there. And the other thing that I find fascinating on this is that quote that you said, you can't be what you don't see. And really what clicked in my head when you said that was, 
if you have someone in a leadership role that is diverse and they are out recruiting others, then it is going to be much more of an inspiration for everyone else that they are trying to bring aboard. And those are two things that I'm going to take away from this. And I really appreciate that perspective. And hopefully it wasn't too controversial of a question (laughs) that I asked earlier. We'll hear about it in the comments, I'm sure. Or someone will write a bad iTunes review. So if it was... (laughs) please feel free to do it, whatever. It's all good for the SEO purposes. But anyway, (laughs) I want to finish talking to you a little bit about your podcast and things that you've learned, what insights you've come across so far since you've started doing it. Wow. Yeah. So um, I've been a podcast enthusiast for like over a decade. I used to listen to podcasts on my iPod. Um, you know, my, the first podcast oh, wow. I ever listened to was Radio Lab. A friend of mine got oh, me so into good. it. So oh, good. So like I'm good. talking like 2008 vibes. I was listening to Jad Abimrad and Robert Krolich, <laughs> like teach me science in a way that was Incredible. like compelling for the first time since I was like seven. And um, obviously the medium has like massively exploded since then. And there's been so many like blockbuster podcasts and stuff. But anyway, so I am a big fan and actually doing a podcast wasn't my idea. It was um, uh, an old client of mine, um, actually a recent client, but also old client and just contact good friend of mine, Greg Detra, who used to be the chief data scientist at Channel 4, Um you know, was like, I'm thinking of doing a podcast, but he was like, I don't really have time to do it. So could like, can you organize it? <laughs> and oh. I was like, uh, sure. Um, not really, but fine. And, um, we kind of went on this journey together and, uh, the premise for it was basically like, we saw a gap in the market for the podcast is called the data dig. And we, and we were responding to this gap in the market for um, understanding data science from a business perspective. Um, So empowering businesses to use data science and demystify it uh, so that they can, you know, for the companies out there who aren't, you know, powered by AI, like how can they leverage AI to improve their, you know, whatever. Um, And uh, yeah, it's just been, it's been so fun. It's been completely illuminating, as you know, like really hard work. Um, Luckily, we've got, we quickly realized there was no way we were going to be able to do it on our own. So we've got some help with marketing and and production and amazing producer um, that we're very lucky to be collaborating with, Misha. And uh, uh, yeah, it's just been such a great forum to have conversations about what's happening in the space. Um, You know, our most recent episode that came out today is uh, called What is a Machine Learning Engineer? Um, And it's all about like trying to figure out where data science ends and machine learning engineering begins and trying to like figure out why everyone's trying to rebrand their data scientists as machine learning engineers and why that's dysfunctional. And, you know, so we really get down to the nitty gritty of it. And I think we do it in a way that is actually appealing to a broad audience because we don't get hung up on like the technical stuff. We talk about the application of it um, and we also talk about 
stuff that's kind of universal. It kind of transcends data science. We talk about how to apply for a data science job and how to hire a data scientist. And a lot of the themes are pretty universal. So, so yeah, it's been, um, it's been an awesome journey so far and um, we're getting more and more guests on now. So I'm looking forward to, to where it takes us. That's excellent. I love hearing about this, especially because these are important questions that are coming up. And as we mentioned it before, the splintering of the machine learning engineer or even a data scientist is just whatever you want it to be. Yeah. Something that it needs to be changed. And hopefully in the next couple of years, it will be that we understand when we say data scientist, we mean one thing. When we say data engineer, we mean another thing. When we're looking for an analyst, it's something else. And the job description, and, and I think this is really apparent when you look at a job description for a machine learning engineer from one company, and then you look at a job description for a machine learning engineer at another company, and it's two totally different worlds. It's like they're in different universes. Mm -hmm. And you realize that if someone that is a machine learning engineer is expected to know everything, it's going to be really hard on them because you can't know all of this that these two universes are so separate and there either needs to be standardization in the way that we talk about it or the splintering, I think, that we were mentioning. And and so that we can say, this is a more specific type of machine learning engineer. It's a, and I've even, and then also on top of that, you have all this new terminology that's coming out. And so you have the ML ops coming into play. And then, and is there such thing as an ML ops engineer? Is there, I've even heard people say like machine learning scientist instead of a machine learning engineer and then you have the machine learning researchers and so there are so many new words that come out every day that you hear something new and and I think it's great that you're spreading the good word about that and trying to help standardize it I have one last question for you before we go Kelly are you a robot no I'm not a robot (laughs) proud to say are you (sighs) Not that I know of. (laughs) I I really hope not, but it is, there is a slight possibility. There is. I have a hard time uh, proving why I'm not. I do think my brain resides mostly outside my body now. (laughs) It resides in my phone, which is a bit of a scary thing, but... Um, I don't know if that makes me, or maybe that makes me a cyborg. Cyborg, completely. A cyborg. Like, I can't remember anything. It's all in my, like, calendar or, um, it's actually terrifying, to be honest with you. Like, <laughs> like I don't know. I've, I'm worried about what's going to happen to my children. But, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're you know, the robots are, are taking over. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not in the HR world. There still is that human touch that is necessary. And oh, a hundred percent. Cyborgs are taking it. over. That's that's I yeah. think a better way of of saying it. <laughs> that's it. Well, it's been great talking to you, Kelly, and I really appreciate your insights. I appreciate you playing ball with me on these harder questions and and teaching me a lot. You've been able to open my mind, and as you know, this is the best part about podcasting, right? I get to sit and talk with all kinds of different people and learn from them. And so it has been an enlightening conversation to say the least. Thanks again. 
I feel the same. Thanks so much. And uh, all the best with this podcast. I've had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm.